Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. If you are like me, and I know I am, I get easily confused with economic policies. When I read about things in the paper, I go, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. And I feel like I do that more often than I care to admit. But So I always like having Dr. Ann Bradley on. She is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies, she also serves as Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute. She's a professor at George Mason University, and I always love having her on the program. And welcome. Hi, Bill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. How are you? Oh, I'm well. And my, my opening comment was true. I get confused by headlines I read and things I hear. And I always think to myself, I got to call Ann and get this sorted out. So thank you for doing the show today. <laughs> my pleasure. It's fun to be here always. Yeah. Like when I when I read in the paper and I hear the president say the first two months of our administration, we've created more jobs than the first two months of any administration in American history. I think, why? Why is there so many businesses with now hiring signs up? Why? Why do coffee shops close at noon? Yeah. And I if we could just take one even that question one step farther, sure. which is to say. Why are presidents taking responsibility for job creation Interesting. <laughs> in the private sector? So, and, and all presidents do this, frankly, all the time. So okay. um, it's not just Biden. I mean, presidents always talk about economic progress under their administration. And it is true that numbers have improved in terms of employment. And I mean, really, like you're saying, all you have to do is look around anywhere in your hometown. I would say regardless of where our listeners are right now, you can see help wanted signs everywhere. Right. And as you said, the coffee shop closed. Why is it closed at noon? Right. They used to be open until nine at night. Yeah. You could go work there all day if you wanted to. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and so this is this is a reality. So I, I, I think it's important to note that unless we're talking about a president, say, opening up a new bureaucracy and that, you know, requires that we hire you know, 50,000 people or something. OK, then the president is directly responsible for creating jobs. But really, and you don't want a president to be directly responsible for job creation. What a president does is run the executive branch. And uh, we know that. Mm-hmm. But. What that means is that the president of the United States is an important part of our government system. And the job of that system is not to direct economic affairs or to control the market, but rather to create an environment for productivity, entrepreneurship and economic growth. So, Mm -hmm. yes, the president, you know, the decisions the president makes certainly can have an effect on employment. So that's the first kind of thing I wanted to address there. But to your second point, you know, an economist never we, – we always say we never look at data points. We only look at trends. So I think, you know, I understand why the president is taking the credit for jobs increasing um, under his clock. But really, a lot of this goes back beyond 
two months of history, right? I mean, this this is we're we're hopefully easing out of a pandemic, but we are see that the economy is rebounding. We're seeing that GDP is increasing. We're seeing that people are looking for work. If you want a job right now, it's a great position to be in. If you're an employer right now, it's a tough position to be in because it's very hard to hire people. And there's a variety of reasons in the economy that we're seeing that. One, I don't know if you've heard this term, the great resignation. So people are, yeah, so people are kind of talking about all these people who are quitting. They're leaving the job market. And and the concern in in this term, the great resignation, is, is this is this a really big problem? And of course, if people were just quitting and going home and sitting on the couch, we would be worried because we need people to work at the coffee shops, at the hospitals, everywhere. We all need to be, you know, being productive. But what we're seeing is that people are switching jobs. Mm. So a lot of the people who have permanently left the labor force over the past two years are seniors. And so they are permanently leaving the labor force and they are not coming back. And I would suggest that's something that we probably don't need to be overly worried about um, in the sense that you're only going to quit your job as a senior if, you know, you can afford to do that. I mean, outside of health problems that might make people need to quit. But if we're looking at the vast majority of senior quits, we're looking at people who are deciding to retire early. And people can only decide to retire early if they have funds to do so based on you know how long they think they're going to live and how much it costs. Um, to maintain their standard of living. So what we're really seeing is a lot of people that are trying to advance their career. Uh, I just read an article this morning that said that, you know, if you're a DC professional, it's a great time to be trying to, you know, um, take a new job so that you can get that pay increase. And so there's a lot of demand for different types of workers, both um, labor, you know, kind of things like hotel and restaurants, those have gained a lot over the holiday season, but even, you know, kind of professional service type of jobs, um, it's a good time to be looking to swap a job, and that's what people are doing. And so some of it is is really good news, and it's a recovery story. Uh, now, the question is, of course, with the trend is, you know, will that maintain itself into the future? Yeah, and, and my comment to start our discussion was not to pick on President Biden at all. It was more a observation I I made when I see a a line like that, and I don't know how to process it well. Because when I see the labor shortage, and I think, well, that will slow the economy, and that's going to only boost inflation, so I need an economist to help me sort this out. Yeah. Fortunately, I have you on the line. Well, and I'll I'll do my best. But, you know, what we're seeing right now is really phenomenal when you're talking about places like Walmart, so if you've seen this in the news, Walmart is offering to pay for your tuition. So you can go be a cashier at Walmart, and they are going to help you go to college. Why would Walmart do that? Well, because they really need workers. They need to staff wow. the stores. And so that's this is just supply and demand, right? They're doing what they can to entice you to work there. Amazon, I think I heard something like $3,000 uh, sign-on bonuses. So there's just tons of stories like this abound. Um, and, and a lot of it is because, you know, we just we need more people. Um, and you mentioned inflation. And I think this is important as well, because this is where we're going to see disproportionate effects on people based on their income. So what I'm trying to say there is that, you know, if you're if you're upper middle class or in the top of the income distribution, inflation, you don't like it. But 
it's not going to kill you, right? It, it, you're just going to keep buying groceries and you're going to keep putting gas in your car and you're probably going to keep taking vacations. You're going to do all those things. You're going to keep putting money in your savings account. But if you're at the bottom end of the income distribution, this is where inflation becomes a real problem uh, because, you know, we're seeing food prices go up. Gas prices have been going up. Uh, housing prices are certainly up. But that's not just an inflationary pressure, but inflation isn't helping that. And so, you know, these types of things are going on. And again, if you're at the bottom of the income distribution, you're making minimum wage, it's going to be really hard for you to pay, you know, 30% more at the grocery store or something like this. And so I think we really need to be concerned about inflation. Um, we haven't seen inflation at the rates we're seeing it in about 40 years so since the 1980s. And so this is something that economists are watching, the Fed is watching, but I think it has real disproportionate effects on people. So we need to be thinking about people who, you know, are not at the top of the income distribution and how do they fare under a system with growing inflation because it's it's going to affect their their jobs and their income and all those types of things. It seems like often the decisions government makes always has those that particular group in mind, the people who are living paycheck to paycheck, and yet they're the ones that are getting hit the hardest right now. Agreed, agreed. Um, you know, in economics, we call this the law of unintended consequences. Um, and, you know, I'm an economist and I teach econ. And so I think about that all the time. And uh, I think we would all do ourselves a, a favor. Maybe I think about it too much, but I think we should all consider this more, especially when we think about policymaking, because all of our actions in policy have these, what we call unintended consequences. And what we mean by that is that we didn't want them to occur, but they did because we didn't have enough foresight. So, you know, very famous economic writer, Frederick Bastiat said, what separates a good economist from a bad economist is the good economist looks at both the seen and the unseen. And, and the bad economist just says, well, you know, um, I raised minimum wage today. People are, some people are making more money. I did a good thing. But what if raising minimum wage actually causes more people to be unemployed? That's the unintended consequence. So I think you're absolutely right. And what I worry about is the past two years have been just nonstop policymaking and government spending as a response to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we see more of that on the horizon with the Build Back Better plan um, in the hands of the Senate. And so the question is, you know, we have to get real clear headed about what is actually going to help people who need the help the most. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that more spending programs, I don't know that there's evidence that they're going to accomplish that. And when you think of inflation, and we know that it's gotten worse, what do you uh, predict the next uh, 12 months is going to look like? Well, I hate to say the famous economist response, which is, it depends. Okay, but I get <laughs> but it that. Depends I, a I get bit. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what we do. So it it depends on what the Fed does. Um, and there's reports coming out now that they're expected to increase interest rates. They see almost full employment. They're worried about inflation, um, you know, kind of policymakers and central bank figures were telling us six months ago that the inflation that we're seeing is transitory, meaning it's just a passing thing. It's not permanent. That has not played out to be, you know, that has not turned out to be true. So inflation is here for now and it is, it's very damaging and people are worried about it. So I think you're going to see Jerome Powell take that very seriously um, and I think the Fed is going to respond accordingly. Here's one of the problems, and I believe we talked about this a little bit last time we were together. Um, one, of the, one of the things that the Fed has done 
over the past several years, again, in response to COVID and the pandemic, is to engage in kind of some unorthodox activities, including giving loans um, to business entities. That That is really not what the Fed's mandate is to do. And so, you know, um, some economists have criticized the Fed saying they're really not just engaging in monetary policy right now, but they're engaging in fiscal policy. And that is not the mandate of the Fed. The Fed should be worried about money supply and money demand. That's their job. And so I do think that we've t- seen the Fed kind of engage in some unorthodox activities um, under the banner of quantitative easing um, and getting, you know, all this money floating around in the system. And of course, that is going to have inflationary pressures. And here they are. And so I, I think Powell is is going to address that. Um, but, you know, it, that's not our only problem. As I mentioned before, we have fiscal problems. And, and you and I have talked about this a lot uh, in the past, mm-hmm. which is just that, you know, we have a spending problem. Yeah. And we don't seem to have a political response because, in my opinion, neither Republicans or Democrats are very um, you know, just uh, serious about the spending problem. I think sometimes they say they are, but if you look at their actions, um, they have not really reduced spending much. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. And when we come back in, I want to ask you this question, uh, and this would be like to the Fed, have we waited too long to fight inflation? We'll take uh, a little break and be right back with Dr. Ann Bradley. Bradley, she is a professor at George Mason. She is an author. She is at the vice, she's vice president of the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics, and an all-around very smart person. And nice enough to come on my show. So, Anne, if we were to ask the Fed, uh, did you wait too long to fight inflation? What do you think their answer might be? Well, I don't. I mean, I don't know what they would say. Okay. But what I would say is, it's never too late to do the right thing. Right. right? So. Um, you know, it's not all is not lost here. I think what you have to be careful of, again, it's the story of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like when you throw a rock, you know, in the water, imagine a kind of a still pond and you throw a rock in there. Yes, you get the action of the splash, but you get this ripple effect, right? So the water actually moves for a long time after the rock has sunk. And it takes a very long time for that water to get back to still. That's how we have to think about these um, interventions in market affairs, whether they be through the Fed or through regulatory policy or through, you know, stimulus spending. And so sometimes, you know, there might be some things that warrant these interventions, but we just, all I'm saying is we have to be very cautious about the future. So I think if the Fed is too aggressive in trying to stop inflation, um, you know, kind of pumps the brakes too fast, then we could have other unintended consequences. You don't want to see a recession as a result of the Fed kind of doing things too quickly. And so I think that the Fed needs to proceed with caution um, and not just kind of run in. And so what we're seeing is, you know, we're looking at March perhaps for the first Fed rate hike. And so I think we just have to see, but that goes back to the question you asked me earlier. How we recover from this will depend on what we do. And I think using a lot of prudence in all of this really, really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, because of these unintended consequences. We have to be very aware of that. And a recession, again, who is that going to hurt the most? It's going to hurt the people who live at the bottom of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. They fare the worst in inflation. They They fare the worst in unemployment issues. They fare the worst in recessions. And so... Um, we want to be very cautious about the effects of our policies. So, Anne, when we look out over the next year with inflation, and hopefully things will improve, but what, what would be some counsel you would give people as they look over their next 12 months thinking this could get worse, it could get better? Are there any mm-hmm. encouragements you would say uh, in terms of people taking care of their personal finances? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that this is always true, but I think it's really true at a time with great economic uncertainty is that, and this is hard to do in a time of inflation, of course, um, so I don't want it to, to sound trite, but I do think saving as much as we can for the future is really an important thing. And it doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, if you can, I, my husband and I have gone through Dave Ramsey's books and We've kind of engaged in some of um, his recommendations to just save more, use cash. So things like that, I think, little changes, putting $10 away a week if you can, Um, because those little nest eggs can help you if you face a job loss. Um, I mean, what if you get quarantined? So this is COVID is still very real in terms of if you get quarantined or if you get sick and you have to stay home and you have a job where if you don't show up, you don't get paid because you don't have paid vacation. This is a real problem. So even little amounts of saving are good. I think the other thing is just to look back at, you know, right again, right now, especially for those who are thinking, you know, I'm, if things get worse, I'm not going to be able to make ends meet. I think one of the things we can do is figure out what can we eliminate. Um, my husband has kind of really been good at teaching me this, but um, we try to do very few subscriptions, you know, like we don't have a gym membership. And I'm not saying gym memberships are bad, by the way. I'm just saying I think when you automatically give people 50 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or all those, you know, they add up and you start to not think about them. And so, you know, we try to be very judicious in our family about what are those things that we're going to subscribe to and what are we just not going to, you know, not going to do. So I think, again, you know, what can we cut back on? Um, the other thing is I don't want to encourage hoarding at all. And I don't know if you've been to the grocery store recently, and I certainly don't know what your grocery stores look like compared to mine, but it's really interesting to see what we're short on right now. Um, and a lot of it is supply chain issues. Some of it is inflationary issues. We just had two snowstorms, which, you know, my joke is if you want to shut down the D.C. government, you just call for snow. <laughs> so <laughs> people panic here and they overreact. And so my husband went to the grocery store on his way home from work two days ago. And the, the line was all the way to the back of the store. So he just left. I mean, and we got two wow. inches. It was silly. Yeah, silly. But I went to the grocery store yesterday and the shelves are still empty. So two little snowstorms will do that. My whole point in all this is weather, supply chain issues, inflationary issues, all these things mean you might not have as much predictability on your grocery shelves. For the next few weeks, hopefully that's going to end soon. But I think stocking up on things like pasta and pasta sauce is always a good idea. So I think there's little things that all of us can do to help us be prepared. I think one of the biggest problems is when we face a crisis, we don't have any leftovers, right? Any savings, whether it's money in the bank or something in your pantry. Um, You know, if you're looking for jobs, you know, kind of pursuing those with a lot of diligence. I think those things prepare us 
when the crisis hits. And, you know, and my hope is that we are coming out of this and at the end of 2022, we can say, look, it's been a long three years, but things are a lot better. And I think things are better now. There's, there's good economic indicators out there, but inflation is just, it's, it's unauthorized taxation of your wealth. Mm-hmm. It makes your paycheck worth less. And there's very little that any one of us can do about it. So I think you just have to react and prepare for the future. So those are some things I think all of us could do. Yeah. And you've got me thinking about recurring payments in the in the waves of subscriptions, things that you that you pay for every month, whether or not you're using them and how careful you I think you need to be because that can add up so fast, can it? So fast. And it's stuff that sometimes you don't even use. I mean, again, I think that there's sometimes good call to do these things, but I think we just forget about the money, but they don't forget about taking our money. And so when the belt needs to be tightened, you know, you can always renew a subscription later if you want to, and if you have the cash, but I think that's a, a, a good thing that all of us can look at in our financial portfolios. And then do you have any news about the supply chain? Do you know anything about that? right now? Well, I'm not important. So people don't call me and tell me things. Um, (laughs) I think you're important. Um, I'm not teasing. I'm definitely just, yeah, I'm not on those inside conversations, but you know, I think that that is clearing up. I know that um, in the ports of uh, particularly in California, um, there were some problems, even this is silly, but just even when they could load and unload. And these are these kind of long time labor issues that were on the books and they were making it really impossible for the ships to be brought in from sea. So I think that's going to resolve itself. Um, although the flip side of that is to say, gosh, COVID is still with us. China is pursuing and parts of China are pursuing a zero COVID policy, which I mean, I don't even know what that means. It's unattainable. And that could disrupt international supply chains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we just have to see. But that's why I say, you know, don't hoard because that makes the shelves empty. We don't need to do that. But, you know, it, it doesn't hurt anybody to have an extra box of spaghetti <laughs> if you see one and that's something you eat. You know, I'm always just very surprised when I walk into a store and I see what things are plentiful and what things. And I'm like, why can't I find maple syrup? That's weird. <laughs> it's things you don't always predict. You know, it's strange. So um, I think just being aware is helpful. Yeah. But I, I think that these things will resolve. And if you bring up spaghetti one more time, I know what I want for dinner tonight. You know what you want for dinner. Yes. Yeah. My family's downstairs eating lasagna, so pasta oh, must nice. be on my brain. Yeah. We, yes. just, we just have a minute left, Anne. Is your family all well? The kids all doing they, good? They are. Thank you for asking. Good. They are well. We are, we are taking it day by day, but we're doing well. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you so much for taking the time. I always look forward to talking to you, and I'm always glad when you can come on. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. You bet. Thanks. Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest. We're going to segue now to learning a little bit more Greek with Chris Palmer. Uh, We always look forward to learning Greek. I do anyway, and I hope you do too. So we'll take a very short uh, step away, and then when we come back, we'll join Chris Palmer, and we'll learn some Greek.
I'm looking forward to talking to my friend, the Reverend Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. He's the host of the popular podcast, Greek for the Week, seen on many internet platforms. Chris, welcome. Hey, it's good to be with you, Bill. How's it going? Happy New Year. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. Are you uh, staying warm in your neck of the woods? You're in Michigan. You know what? I actually am in Palm Desert, California right now. So oh. we are as warm as it gets in the U.S. at I, the moment. I like you less right now. <laughs> well, you know, the 75-degree <laughs> weather is, is ground for jealousy. Now, what are you doing there? And and why aren't you miserable in Michigan? Yeah, you know what? I find a way to, uh, to escape. I'm uh, teaching right okay. now in Palm Desert for Thales University. So it's a tough gig, but somebody's got to do it. Oh, I'm glad you stepped up. You're a, you're a good man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Pray for me. Yeah, for I me. will, indeed. Now, we usually talk Greek with you, and I'm always looking forward to Greek, but I think we're going to um, maybe talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit and the fruits today. Yeah, well, you know what? We're going to do We're going to do a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about it using Greek, and, uh, of course, we'll uh, kind of talk about these subjects, but come at it from the perspective of Greek, if that's okay with you. I'm looking forward to it. I've got my notebook out and my pen ready. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, things that we can understand um, about those. Perhaps the first place that we should start is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. And this is Paul's discourse to the Corinthians. I actually was just talking to a professor uh, the other day. He was he did all of his thesis work in Corinthians. He talked about what a rhetorical masterpiece this was. Don't have time to get into that. But Paul is making this rhetorical argument to the Corinthians. And he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, um, and, and he introduces this term here that we're familiar with, uh, spiritual gifts, but the Greek word here is pneumatikon, or panumatikon, uh, kind of a large word, but... Say it again, slowly. Kind of, okay, panumatikon. 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 So you, in Greek, you pronounce the P. It's not like pneumonia, okay. where you have a silent P. You always want to pronounce each letter. So he says panumatikon. And then he, this is where the word kind of first pops up, and then you see this word pop up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And so here we see it again, panumatikon. And so now in two chapters, he's, he said this word twice. And what does he actually mean by this? And, and, and probably the best, most simplest definition of this word is forms of action which come from the Holy Spirit— and reveal that he is at work. And so he's, he's, he's making an argument. He's saying that these, these gifts here reveal to us that the Spirit is actually in our midst, and he's at work. So it's the third person of the Trinity at work in our midst as a result of these panumatikon. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, then he kind of does something rhetorically interesting, and that is he— he gives it a different phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So he says here in the 7th verse, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So he's talking about a general assembly of believers that have come together, taking the Eucharist, which is a church or whatever type service, and he calls it the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, this is a really interesting, it's not a word here, it's a phrase, and it's the phrase here, 
phanerosis to pneumaton. So the word that we want to hone in on is the word phanerosis. Phanerocyst. Um, phanerocyst. Phanerocyst. Now, Bill, does the word here "phos" sound like anything to you at all? Like maybe a derivative that we have in English of anything? Uh, which, a, which word? The word phanerosis, If we, it, the root word of it is the word "phos." Does that sound at all like anything we have in English? Yeah, it does. How about how about photography? Maybe? Oh yeah. Can we yeah. make the connection? Okay. Yeah, that would work. So we think of the etymology of the word photography, right? We're, we're thinking of, well, what is this? It's a derivative in English of, the, of first the word phos, which means light, and then grapho, which means to write. So when you consider what a photograph is, it is a writing with light. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? The transcription of light. The transcription of light, exactly mm-hmm. what it is. And so when we see um, phanerosis, uh, this here actually represents to to make something known or a flash of light or something that a boom of light. That's what phanerosis means here. And, and it doesn't always have to be associated with light, but what it does is, is it simply means to announce something, to make something known, to publicly declare something, or to say something in detail. And the way that this word was used in the um, in the ancient world is that it was the word for publicity. And so um, it was used in Greco-Roman days to talk about publicity for war heroes who would come home from war after being on the battlefield. And we think of athletes today, but in those days, war heroes got the publicity. So if you're in in Greco-Rome, TMZ or the paparazzi, okay, our TMZ, they'd follow around the war heroes, the ones that did something great in battle. And so... This means publicity. So when he says the phanerosis of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the revealing of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit essentially here are being stated that they, when the gifts of the Spirit are, are, are demonstrated in the midst of the people of God, it makes known to us that the third person of the Godhead is in our midst, and he is at work, and he's alive within us as a congregation. And that's what Paul is saying in First Corinthians chapter 12. Isn't that something? Oh, it's fantastic. I just got all excited. Thank you. <laughs> so I mean, that's, just a, about, that's good news. That is good news. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that, what, so what the gifts of the Spirit do, gifts of healing, or however we interpret words of knowledge or words of wisdom, you know, theologically, there are different ways of, of explaining what the Apostle Paul meant when he, he explained those. But whatever we determine those to be, okay, however we think about those, when they're at present or midst, we know that we have we have God at work within it. And so um, that would have been very encouraging to the Corinthian church at that time, and uh, that would have been something that uh, the Apostle Paul would not discourage. He would, in fact, want to encourage that um, because this is something that they would find edification, exhortation, and comfort in just having uh, the third person, the role of the Godhead. Uh, involved in in their midst at that time. Very interesting, Chris. Chris Palmer is my guest. We're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we're right now uh, still in chapter uh, 1 of Corinthians in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Yep. Yep. Okay, so now we can talk about this a little bit more, um, maybe from the perspective of Luke, because I think when, in doing my... um, my PhD in in Pentecostal literature and Pentecostal history. One of the mistakes maybe 
that the Pentecostals made in their early formation is that they began to maybe stress one of the the people, one of the persons of the Godhead more than the others, that they really made it about Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, talking about Christ and talking about Jesus. It only becomes problematic when when you start to form a doctrine that it's there's only one person in the Godhead, and it starts to take away from the Trinitarian. So I think that we should be intentional at times about recognizing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our midst. Our songs should recognize that we serve a triune God. And this actually became problematic to the point that the, the Pentecostals split into a denomination that was apostolic or Jesus only, and it became it was the heretical branch of. And, and if you look back kind of on the history, it's because they were only looking at one person of the Godhead and, and focusing strictly on that. But that's history. And so what I like to do is when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I like to show that when the Holy Spirit is at work in our midst, it's not just the Spirit; it is the Spirit. But it's also the work of the Father, and it's the work of the Son. The Spirit works with the Father, and the Spirit works with the Son. Okay, the, the same in essence. They're one in essence, but they're three in persons. And I think the biblical writers really go out of their way to show this. So when I say the gifts and the work of the Spirit, yes, I'm explicitly saying it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But implicit in that statement, I'm also suggesting that the Father is at work and the Son is at work because it's through them that the Spirit was sent. Jesus sent to us the Spirit, okay? And so we see this in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts. Jesus ascends, tells his disciples that he's going to go up and he's going to come down the way that they saw them go up. And then he'd also said to them um, that he's with them always. We see that in Matthew's account. But then as he exits the narrative, the Spirit enters the narrative, and we see in the book of Acts in chapter 116 to 4, to 7, to 18, to 33, 4, 7, to 10. We just see the Holy Spirit just, it's like the book of Acts is his, right? And, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Jesus said he would be with us always, even unto the end of the earth. But now we see the third person of the Trinity. So how, how, does this actually, how does this actually work for us to know that the Spirit's there, or that Christ is there, but it's the work of the Spirit? And I think, I think what's interesting is that when we come to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, Luke makes a rhetorical move in the way that he's writing. I think it's ironic, but I think it speaks. It says here, And they went to the region of Phygerian Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Then it says here, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. So it's mm. almost as though he... He calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. And you, you scratch your head thinking, now, why would he do this? And I think, and I really would argue, and other commentators would argue here, is that the, the trick is in understanding how the Greek here is functioning with the Spirit of Jesus. It's, it's, it's an agenda construction, which simply would mean the Spirit that comes from Jesus. And so he's letting the audience know that it is through the Spirit that comes from Jesus that Paul is being directed. So yes, it is the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit who was sent to us from Jesus, and therefore it is the Godhead at work in the lives of the Apostle Paul, and Jesus is very much still present in the narrative, concerned about the lives of his apostles and about his church working through the Spirit, so it all ties in there. Wow, that's a lot, Chris. You've, <laughs> you've, done, some, you've done some thinking about this passage. 
My brain is on overdrive. Can you tell us? Well, I can absolutely tell it. Now I'm trying to I'm trying to keep up with you, and I tell you, it's uh, it's I'm working hard. <laughs> well, I, and that to me is it's it's just one of the most wonderful things about scripture is that you know we have. I was I was teaching this to a group of young people um, at a conference, and the importance of acknowledging the triune nature of God, and it was really beautiful because at this point in the sermon. We all stopped. There's a couple hundred youth there, and we started singing "Holy, Holy, Holy," the the old hymn. And we got to that part where it says, "God in three persons, blessed Trinity." And it just was a beautiful moment to, you know, teach our young people um, about the way that God is revealed to us in Scripture, and uh, and that's the Holy, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know, I don't think at all you, it's wrong to pray to one member of the Godhead. You know, at times people always ask me, especially when I pastored, should I pray to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? And I, my answer is always twofold. It doesn't—if you pray to the Holy Spirit or Jesus or the Father, you're not wrong in doing that. But there are ways and models that are demonstrated to us in Scripture of how we should pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we could— formulate biblical models of praying, and I think that's good. But at times, I don't think that you're wrong for praying to one or the other or the other, that that, that makes sense. It does make sense. I appreciate that observation as well. I think it's important uh, that we have an understanding of that, because I, I do know people that feel uh, concerned about whether or not they can pray directly to the Holy Spirit, or right. if they you know, need to go directly to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, like you explained. So I appreciate that very much. Chris, let me uh, step away just for a minute. Uh, Chris Palmer is my guest. We're going to continue to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit and the fruits in just a minute. my guest. We're talking about Greek and also about gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I love this passage. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That is a great passage, and I appreciate your teaching on that, Chris. Well, you know, as believers, you know, the Apostle Paul tells us we should, we should, he says one, on one account, we should earnestly desire uh, this Greek word here means to be zealous or to boil over for something. So it tells us that there should be in our lives a pursuit of of the Spirit. And when the, we pursue the Spirit, and it's not from a legalistic standpoint, but, you know, when people say, well, how, how do I pursue God? I mean, what does this look like? I and mean, He's sovereign. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. You know, what is my part in pursuing Him? You know, I always say that it should really be a heart that desires God, you know, a heart that is in a charismatic context, you might say on fire. Um, maybe in a more reformed context, you might say a heart that is yielded to God, but there should be within the believer 
a heart that earnestly desires the work of the Spirit. And, and the, but the funny thing is, is that if that's there, I do believe it's because it's a grace from God. He placed it there. Okay? And I think there is this tension in Scripture of our yieldedness that comes from our part versus God's grace at work. And, you know, you think, well, did God choose me, or was there a sense in my life where I choose God? It's just, well, there's a lot of real theological debates that get intense, but I think maybe more level-headed people, uh, you get to a place where you think that there's definitely a tension there that uh, that's hard to solve. But I think there's a tension in both. And that that shows that we're in a good place when we're desiring the things of the Spirit. Um you know, I've I've worked with young people. I've worked with you know younger congregations, um, even people that are elderly. And you know, they'll say, "Ah, you know, I was I was fasting for three days, and I broke my fast because I just got too hungry." Or you know, I was trying to read my my Bible plan, and I made it all the way to Leviticus, and 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 I just I failed, and I I messed up my Bible plan. And it can be hard on themselves. And my whole thing is, well. I understand that, you know, you maybe didn't reach your personal goal, but there should be some credit you, you lend to yourself. Because if you're if you're earnestly desiring, or you're like the Greek would say, you're boiling over for the work of the Spirit in your life, that is evidence that God, the third the third person in the Trinity, is at work and that redemption is is taking has taken place in your life. And God is actually he's up to something. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you desire to pray, or um, you know, you place yourself in that position. You should very, you should be grateful to God. It should be come from your heart to say thank you, Lord, that I have a desire in me that wants to seek you in the morning because you're doing something in my life. I'm seeking your Spirit. And then Paul also says, on the other hand, uh, these these gifts. He says this in First Corinthians chapter twelve. Don't be don't be ignorant about the gifts, or, or don't be uninformed. And he's really making an argument here, and he's, he's comparing them in verse number two about the pagans who, who were led astray in their ignorance and their misunderstanding. And so, in, in a sense, he's saying there's also something about the Spirit of God and how he works that, that should be discovered. And I think he's pointing here to more than just a desire that comes from a heart but an intellectual aptitude that, and I'm not saying it has to be some sort of doctoral level or master's degree level or even college level understanding, but there should be a, in, in every one of us a working out of how, who God is and how he functions and how he, these are things we should contemplate in our life. You know, we, Thomas Aquinas was talked about how every time we think about God, when we're, we're pondering God and we're thinking about him, that is to the glory of God. When I think a thought about God, or I ponder my faith, or I ponder who He is, I've done something for the glory of God. When I use my brain to think about things like suffering, or um, reconciliation to God, or what God desires when it comes to human flourishing, or how to be like Him, even if I don't have an answer to that, even if it doesn't come to me, uh, or a solution. I've done something for the glory of God by thinking that thought. And I think that's really, I think First Corinthians chapter 12 would support that. Boy, Chris, I would love for you to say more because you've got me so intrigued right now. I mean, even the thought <laughs> that you just had is something I have to chew on a little bit in order for sure. it to, to make, to have it make full sense to me. But um, yeah. yeah, is there well, is you, there anything else yeah. you can add? Because I'm so intrigued. Yeah, you know, again, it goes to that 
whole idea that, well, I can only speak for my context, you know, Bill. Okay. I, I grew up in a, in a very, and I don't want to, I learned not to speak for everybody the hard way, I think, you know. Sure. I get enough emails that say, well, that's not how I grew up. And, but let me say in my, and maybe somebody listening can relate, in my, where I came from, I came from a very ultra, you know, charismatic crowd. And it's, it seemed like the way that the Holy Spirit was understood is that he was only present in healing and, and the gifts of the Spirit, and beyond, or, or, or people falling over or you know, being slain in the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. And that was it. And if that wasn't happening, uh, you were dead spiritually and dry, and you lost the fire, you lost the zeal, and you know, so on and so forth. I'm sure at least one lifter may understand where I'm coming from. But as I began to... But but and I didn't always see that you know there, not every service was like that most services weren't like that and then as I started in ministry and you know I'd go to different services and preach and I, I I was measuring success that way but as I began to really grapple with my faith more I began to understand that whatever we do we do for the glory of God and thinking and thinking about God is something that when you think about it I'm using my energy. And again, this goes back to Aquinas. I am using the facility, the faculty that God gave me, which is my brain and my mind. And I am setting that on God. And by setting it on God, I am yielding it back to him. Uh, You know, my life, I look at it, you could say life or my ability to think. You could say on one sense, it's a gift and you wouldn't be wrong because God freely gave it to you. But more than just a gift, I believe it's an investment, that God has given us our ability to think. And I think what God expects in that is a return. I've given you the ability to think. What are you going to do with your ability to think? Are you going to use your brain for much? Are you going to watch Netflix constantly and and look at social media and, and the lives of other people? Or are you going to take your brain and are you going to think about me and ponder me? And not that God needs that, that doesn't, he's not an egomaniac who needs that. He, God's spending eternity without us, okay, not needing that. But God knows that for us to flourish the way that he, he intends for us to flourish, we need that in and of ourselves. So we think about God. It's to the glory of God. And God gets glory because what it does for us is it causes us to flourish. When I meditate on God, when I meditate on, when I raise ontological questions about the very nature of God, you know, who is, what is his being like? It's Father, Son, and Spirit. What is it? And, and you wrestle with these things. Um, Matthew the Poor, who was a Orthodox monk, said that prayer is needed for us because prayer is what forms virtue in our lives. The reason, one of the sole reasons that we need prayer is because out of that prayer comes the formation of virtue, you know? And so you, I think about that in my own life, Bill. If I don't pray... I can become nasty. I can be people, the person driving next to me is a victim of road rage because I'm not praying because the virtue is not being produced. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a ton of sense. I don't know if I've ever heard it put that way either, Chris, that prayer is uh, necessary to bring about virtue. To bring about virtue. It's it's what God uses to form virtue in our lives because it is, is, because when you are working with in prayer, you are, you're engaged to the father, the son and the spirit and, and what comes of that? Well, it's divine virtue. I was with a scholar, and I said, what, what, what's the difference between virtue according to the classics, like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and virtue according to Scripture, what the Bible teaches? And he said, oh, that's a well-placed question, but I would say there's that one factor in. It's, the, the difference in virtue is 
that Christian virtue, only the Spirit can bring that about. It's not, it's not based on honor in a sense of, of power. Like the, the, the virtue in the classics was based on power, and it was, it was elitism and classism, and the higher the class, the better you are. Christian virtue was different. It was more like serving like Christ and, and, and showing love the way Christ showed it. And, and, and what is perceived in virtue in Christianity is often in, in classics perceived as a weakness. And the only way that we can bring about that subversive type of virtue is through the work of the Spirit that comes about in our prayer life. Mm. Chris, thank you for uh, coming on the show today. It's always nice to talk to you, and I'm I'm jealous that you're in Palm Springs, <laughs> and I'm going to only hold it against you for about four months. That's about it. I'll be, well, I'll be thinking and praying for you. you. You may need a little more prayer than me with that weather there. there so. <laughs> All right. Have a, have a great time, and I'll talk to you again in a few weeks. Yeah, you, okay. you bet. Okay. Reverend Chris Palmer has been my guest, and I want to thank all my guests. I hope you enjoyed the discussions we had today and the topics we discussed. We talked uh, about the Lord's Prayer today during the Monday afternoon mix. And if you missed any of today's show, I always recommend you taking an opportunity to go to myfaithradio.com. You can go to the show page and you can uh, check out the podcast. That's the best way to, to do that. We'll take... Uh, um, we will take always always take your prayer requests. You've got something on your heart that you need us to pray for. Just we want you to know we're here for you. All right. Have a great night, everyone. As we wrap up this Maryland Monday, I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.